Well, good morning. Happy Easter. I want to add my word of welcome. My name's Randy Gruendike. I'm the new elder of ministry leadership uh, with an emphasis on new. So if this is your first Sunday or you're recently new to Grace, well, I'm in the same boat with you. It's great to be here. It was good to have my wife and two of my three daughters with us in the first service. And, um, you know, while we were singing, singing during the first service, I was reminded of the fact that God's people used to meet on Saturdays. But it's because of the resurrection that Jesus directed them to begin meeting on Sunday, because that's the day on which Jesus rose. So when God's people come together um, every Sunday, uh, it's in memory, uh, it's an honor of the resurrection. So there's a real sense in which every Sunday is Easter Sunday here at Grace and wherever God's people come together. So that is a, a glorious reality that we celebrate this morning. Well, today we're in the book of uh, Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter of that book. And we're going to read only verses 25, 6, and 7, but we'll be looking at a larger chunk of that chapter. So you can turn there to Luke 24, put your eyes on verse 25, and if you'd stand with me, I'll read this passage together, or rather, I'll read it for us. Uh, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amen. Thus far God's word. You may be seated. If you were Jesus, how would you go about proving that you had been raised from the dead? How would you do that? It, it would not necessarily be an easy thing. For one, rising from the dead is just so way out that not even your friends, your closest friends, uh, might believe that. Certainly was uh, the, the, the case for Jesus. Uh, as certain as he was with his disciples about rising from the dead. And not only that, a third day resurrection. You go through the Gospels and four times Jesus expressly tells them that on the third day he would rise from the dead. On the day that was supposed to happen, it was the farthest thing from their minds. In fact, on the very day that they should have been looking for Jesus' resurrection, they went out to finish embalming his body. And what did they find? Or rather, what happened when they found the empty tomb? Well, the women thought it was a vision, there in verse 23. The 11 didn't believe it, back in verse 11. And the apostle Peter went home shaking his head in wonder, verse 13. The irony here is that even though Jesus' friends weren't looking for the resurrection, his enemies were. So when the um, Pharisees go to Pilate, or rather the Jewish leaders go to Pilate in Matthew 27, 63, they say to him, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb be made secure until the third day. 
So even when presented with some evidence for Jesus' resurrection, uh, there was a, a flat line on the belief monitor of the disciples' hearts. Now, whereas proving that you've been raised from the dead might be met with disbelief, it uh, would totally freak some people out. And that's why some of the post-resurrection encounters uh, are introduced with angels announcing, do not be afraid, Matthew 28, 5. Disciples fleeing, for they were afraid, Mark 16, 8. Jesus saying, don't be afraid, Matthew 28, 10. Why would they be afraid? Well, because later in Luke 24, we find that they thought they had seen a ghost. Uh, any of you of my generation remember Casper? Everybody loved Casper until they realized he was a ghost. And then they were out of there. So if, if Jesus had problems proving that he had been raised from the dead, what makes us think that it would be any easier? And that leads to this question. How did Jesus go about proving that he had been raised from the dead? It, it would seem to me that the greatest Christian apologist would have been Christ himself. So if we can figure out how Jesus brought people from disbelief to belief, then that's something worth paying attention to. Well, what I'd like to do is begin at least by uh, uh, taking a look at how Jesus did not uh, prove that he had been risen from the dead. This is how he did not do it. This is the way I would have done it if I was Jesus. And that is to uh, rent or buy a wagon with, with some draperies along the side and a drop-down stage, and I'd step out from behind the curtain, and I'd show everybody my hands, maybe a little music in the background, pull up my shirt, show everybody where the spear had gone in, pull back my hair, reveal where the thorns had, had pierced my brow. That's the way I would have done it. Now, did Jesus confirm his resurrection with physical proof. Absolutely, we'll see that here later in the chapter. But the Bible doesn't indicate that that was his primary means of proving that he had been raised from the dead. How did he do it? Well, let's begin uh, by reading in verse number 13 of Luke uh, 24. That very day, that is Easter Sunday, two of them, meaning Jesus' followers, we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's down the hill, down, 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 down the hill. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, you may think that's unfair, but Jesus has something in mind, and we'll see what that is. And Jesus said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. In other words, the question stopped them dead in their tracks. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, what do you think we're talking about? It's the only thing anybody else is talking about. It's kind of like all of us after 
I mean, what was anybody else talking about during those days other than what had happened in Shanksville and DC and Manhattan? Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, get ready, because Jesus is about to employ, employ his preferred method of proving that he had been raised from the dead. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus' preferred method of proving that he had been raised from the dead, his preferred method of bringing people from disbelief to belief was the Bible, the scripture. And, and notice how he does it here. He is neither timid nor equivocating. I mean, he just lays it right out there. In fact, the grammar indicates that he was deeply emotional when he responded to this pair, first with a rebuke in verse 25, then a question in verse 26, and finally an exhortation in verse number 27. Why did Jesus rebuke these guys? You would think that he would, he would come along and console them, comfort them. Fellas, it's okay. It's me, I'm here for you. But instead, he rebukes them. Well, he rebuked them for their foolishness and their lack of understanding in the prophets or the scriptures. Now, these are guys who may have been, when they were kids, captains of their Bible quiz team. Uh, I don't know if Bible quizzing is big here in Southern California, but let me tell you where I'm from in Indiana, it is huge. And they may have been the kings of Bible quizzers. Uh, they may have been very active in their navigator chapter at university. Big Bible memory guys. But here's the deal. Bible memory and Bible understanding are two entirely different things. Some of the best technical Bible scholars of the last century were men and women who knew the scripture but did not in any way understand its message. And Jesus is disappointed with these men because they did not understand the message of Scripture. Second thing for which he rebukes these travelers is their lack of belief in the Scripture. He refers to them as being slow of heart. And in the Hebrew mind, the heart was the seat of one's intelligence. 
So basically, he's saying to these uh, uh, fellows, guys, when it comes to the scripture, you're not very smart. Because even if you know about them, you really don't believe in them, do you? These are pretty stinging indictments, especially coming from a guy who is an apparent stranger to this pair. But Jesus goes on to ground his rebuke in a question, and we see it there in verse 26. And the question is this, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, if, if you really knew your Bible, you would understand that the Messiah had to suffer in order to achieve his glory. So take, for example, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush his servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul is made an offering for sin, then he shall see his offspring. Then he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the blessing for which these guys had been longing and looking wouldn't come apart from crushing and grief. And to help these men see this, in other facts, Jesus finally responds with an exhortation in verse 27. You see it says, and beginning with Moses, that is the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, right down to Malachi, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is to say, Jesus proved to them that their long weekend of terror was actually the weekend of triumph for which they had been waiting. And he proved that point by using the Bible. As the story concludes, the value of Jesus' method, that is keeping them from recognizing his identity, is seen because upon his departure and the recognition of his identity, what, what did these two fellows say? They did not say, oh, I thought it was him. I, I thought it was him, but the sun was going down and it was in my eyes and I just didn't recognize him. They didn't say that, did they? They didn't say, well, his hands were jammed in his pocket and his hair was combed down over his forehead. Uh, you know, if he just... If I'd been able to see, no, they didn't say that. No, rather, what they said was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures? That's what brought them to believe. And with the sun down, seven miles down the hill from Jerusalem, they were back on the road, sprinting, back up to town, and banging on the door. Jesus' method for proving that he had risen from the dead for the salvation of sins was identical to his method for proving he had come to die for the salvation of sins. And that method was the scripture. He uses this same method again later on in Luke 24 with the disciples in the upper room. This time he begins with the question, verse 38, what, why, why are you troubled? Why, why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he rebukes them in 39. See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he exhorts them. 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And look at why he did that. Continue reading. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here's why Jesus wanted them to, to understand the scripture. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, declared, announced in Christ's name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the scripture wasn't fulfilled in Jesus to complete some sort of prophetic puzzle, right? That we work on in a Bible class at a Christian university and create charts and graphs and hand them in for a grade. No, rather what the disciples witnessed and began to proclaim in Jerusalem, that is repentance and forgiveness of sins in and by Christ alone, we must continue to herald. We must continue to declare. We must continue to preach, announce, make known by way of the scripture until every last people has heard. It seems to be the biblical pattern from this point out. Peter proclaimed Christ among the Jews by way of the scripture in Acts 2. Philip proclaimed Christ to the African official by way of the scripture in Acts 2. Eight, Peter proclaimed Christ to the Italian soldier by way of the scripture in Acts 10. Paul proclaimed Christ to the Greek philosophers by way of the scripture in Acts chapter 17. So the Bible was the method by which Jesus and those who followed him brought men and women from disbelief to belief, from uh, uh, sin to the forgiveness of sin, and then an ongoing life of uh, repentance. So my question for you is, what's your method? How do you do that? Back in the fall of 1978, there was a conference held at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago. 300 people came together and put their signatures to a document which would later be called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it was uh, uh, part of a 10-year effort to promote and defend biblical inerrancy against the encroaching tides of, of liberalism and, and, and neo-orthodoxy. Well, one of the signers of the Chicago Statement was a fellow by the name of Jim Boyce. He was, at the time, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's since gone on to his reward. But on a spring morning in 1993, I listened to Dr. Boyce talk about, really reflect on a decade worth of work that he and these other signers had put toward defending and promoting the inerrancy of the Bible. And so he was talking about the, the journal and magazine articles that had been published, the, the books and monographs that had been written. But he said, as good as it all was, it didn't really advance the cause like I had hoped. 
In fact, if we had to do it all over again, we may have done just as well to emphasize the sufficiency of the scripture rather than the inerrancy of the scripture. And here was his point. Christians feel like it's incumbent upon them to establish the credibility of the Bible before proclaiming the gospel. But after 10 years of doing just that, Boyce didn't see any longer lines for people waiting to hear and respond to the gospel than he did at the outset of the whole project. And so his conclusion was this, I may have done more good proclaiming the gospel than trying to defend it. Reminds me of the, the well-traveled remark of C.H. Spurgeon, who was supposed to have said, God's word is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Now, am I saying that we should not be educated in extra-biblical matters that help us understand and support the truth of the gospel? That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's all very helpful. But what I am saying is that you don't have to be a world-class apologist to declare the truth of the gospel. Let's say I had a sword in my hand. I, I, I could stand up here and I could declare to you the sufficiency of the sword. I could tell you what kind of steel uh, this sword is made of. I could talk about the degree to which the blade has been ground. I could uh, uh, school you in the lethal nature of the sword's tip. I could talk to you about how well balanced the sword is and the, and the ease of use. And in the process, while informing you about the sufficiency of the sword, bore you to sleep. Or I could simply take the sword and thrust it right into your middle and make you a believer immediately. <laughs> Jesus' method of bringing men and women from disbelief to belief was by way of the word, wielding the word, the sword of the spirit. That's how he, that's how he hacks and whacks his way forward. That was Jesus' method, that was the apostles' method, and that should be our method as well. So my question here as we begin to wind down is this. How well acquainted with the Bible are you? How well do you know the word? Most of us are like this pair on the road to Emmaus. We need to be rebuked for what we don't know, questioned on what we do know, and exhorted toward what we ought to know. And friends, I want to tell you, most of my Bible knowledge has not come by way of an undergraduate major in Bible, which I have, or a graduate degree in uh, theology, uh, biblical literature, which I have. Now really, most of my knowledge of the Bible has come by way of a regular and systematic reading of God's word. And that didn't begin until I was done with all my education and I was in my early 30s and I began to read the Bible for myself. Read it from cover to cover, just like any other book. And I remember at the end of that first year reflecting on what I had read. And I, I came to a few conclusions. Here are a couple. One, 
up to that point, most of what I knew about the Bible, I'd either heard about the Bible or I'd read about the Bible, but I'd never really read the Bible for myself. I've never, I'd never let it speak on its own terms. And the second thing I learned was the truth of the scripture that says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, because that's the year that my life was transformed. That's the year I became a man unlike I had been up to that point. That's the year I became the kind of man that I could have otherwise only dreamed of becoming. It was all by way of God's word. So if you want to believe, or if you want to grow in your belief, then I commend to you on this Easter Sunday the scripture, the Bible. Because when the word gets a hold of your heart, you're going to become the same kind of person that Jesus' followers became. Persons who, according to verses 33 and 34, and then 52 and 53, defied danger, became quite bold in proclaiming the good news, and they would not and they could not be stopped. And so may it be here at Grace Fullerton that years from now, when the history of this place is written, they'll find that the power began here with you and your conviction in and devotion to the word on this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the word made flesh. We thank you for uh, the written word by which his sacrifice and resurrection is communicated to us and the spirit that makes that all understandable and alive. And Lord, we pray that for those who cannot comprehend it, even in this room, that you would bless them now with understanding. And for those who do an even greater understanding and deeper conviction, for the sake of your work in this world, the, the life-giving message of hope and good news, that our sins have been forgiven and we can live in the power of God's love and gracious forgiveness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.